0: We return this morning to the prophet Nahum and uh, pick up where we left off at verse 2 of this prophecy. This is at page 782 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful for you. Thus far, we've considered the setting of Nahum and those prophets Zephaniah and Habakkuk, these three who prophesied uh, at or near the end of the kingdom of Judah before she was exiled. We remember that Judah's a sister to the north, Israel. The ten tribes had been, uh, have been taken into exile by the Assyrians. And now Nahum is addressing himself, taking up this prophecy of the Lord against that intensely wicked nation of Assyria. Now, he begins his prophecy with a lesson in the attributes of God. And we took up the first one last time. We consider the fact that our God is a jealous God. Now we come to a lesson, perhaps uh, even less embraced in our day, certainly less preached, and as a result believed less that God, that our God, is a wrathful God. It is, I say, an attribute often overlooked today, not because it's unknown in the scripture. In fact, a simple study of a concordance we show you that Scripture has plenty, lots and lots to say about His wrath. Now, it's overlooked in our day not because the Bible overlooks it, but because we prefer to overlook it. But if we're people of the book, and that's what we say we are, if we, we uh, agree with Scripture, then we will agree with everything it teaches and know that everything in this Word is profitable to us and, yes, essential to us uh, not only to receive, but to embrace. And that includes all of these harder things to hear as well. So to name we go after we pray. We need the grace Father, that uh, you supply when we open your word to receive everything it has to say to us, deep into the deepest part of our hearts. So we pray that you will do a mighty work. In our hearts and in our midst, teach us about Thyself, we pray. And in so doing, make us more and more like Your Son, we ask in His name. Amen. An oracle concerning Nineveh, Nahum chapter 1. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkash. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes uh, the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His Anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. For you uh, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And then we imagine here that Nahum is referring to the wicked Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who made Judah's king Manasseh a slave, which Manasseh deserved. Anyway, uh, Nahum is prophesying against Assyria now, and particularly against the Assyrian capital. Capital Nineveh, while she is still at full strength. That's the point. Verse, tw- verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now he turns from Nineveh to Judah, or from the Assyrians to Judah. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Now back to Assyria. He turns verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are. There are, I think, few Christian doctrines, biblical doctrines, that is, that are more maligned, more misunderstood, more misrepresented, even downright uh, denied than the wrath of God. And yet, to put it most bluntly, Christianity, the Christian faith, uh, without the doctrine of divine wrath, makes no sense at all, none whatsoever. Now think about it, if there's no divine wrath, then why is there a savior? Remove the wrath of God, and, and, and Christianity, at least Christianity based on the Bible, must be confessed to be all wrong. Totally wrong-headed, Christ and grace become a magnificent a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. That's the reason, the explanation for everything, for God's salvific plan in the Lord Jesus Christ and for a substitute who would endure the wrath of God in our place. Isn't this the way Paul begins his argument in his magnum opus uh, of the Christian faith, the book of Romans? Does he start with the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ in his argument? No, he, he begins his argument to the Romans with the wrath of God. The wrath of God, he writes, is, un, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Remove wrath and the whole, the whole of biblical and Christian faith just collapses in on itself. And in fact, it is the assumption of Scripture all over the place that the wrath of God is real and that it is terrible and that it is set against mankind today. Rarely is it ever proven or argued in the Bible. It is simply a reality that is assumed as indisputable. Now, we're unsurprised, aren't we, when we turn our eyes on on those outside of the faith and find them vehemently denying all of this, denying the doctrine of a wrathful God, especially the secularists, you know, who despise Christianity for teaching any such thing. But how disappointing it is to hear people within the faith, people who know better, denying this as an unnecessary doctrine, an overly harsh one, an outdated one. But then, let's be honest. How much of the time do not we, you and I, dear flock, live with hardly a thought, much less a true sense of this truth that our God is a God of wrath, a wrathful God. It's, it's precisely for those reasons, you see that we must hold tenaciously to this doctrine, distasteful as it may be, even perhaps especially to us who have been brought face to face with it. So first, you and I must believe that the wrath of God is real and that it is undeniable. We must believe that especially in a day and age such as ours in which it's so widely denied You know, it's as likely to receive a serious hearing in our culture today as it was in the culture to whom Nahum preached it in his day. Uh, Look, uh, Syria is at the height of her power here, isn't she? She's on top of the world. She is the world superpower. On top of everything, in her own estimation at least. And here comes this nuisance, this, this, this gadfly, you know, preaching doom and destruction. They couldn't imagine, refused even to countenance the thought that that God's wrath was set on her. Look around, Nahum. That our time is drawing near and, and will soon be upon us. We're the most powerful people in the world. I've often made reference to the, the separation, the gulf that separates Christianity from popular psychology today, but here's one place for, where they actually walk perfectly hand in hand by speaking of the penchant we have for denial total denial, you know, the denial to admit that he's sick. The denial that she is dying, denying that he's the problem in the relationship, denying that she's the one who's got to change, you know, as with any hard truth, and even more with this one, it's difficult for us to hear the wrath of God, especially in the culture of Assyria, so similar in so many ways to our own where people have become so thoroughly confused and so desensitized and and deadened to the realities of sin and accountability for sin? It's almost impossible to hear these words and understand anything of the reality of the wrath of God that's been set against sinners, that is set against sinners. Even sin today, sin, you know, what is sin? Sin few of you are rolling over the Westminster Confession in your minds right now, aren't you? Or, or Catechism, rather. But, but from the world's point of view, sin is just, you know, if it's anything, it's just kind of a weakness or an illness. You know, it's an illness. Uh, always excusable, usually perfectly understandable. And guilt, <laughs> you know, guilt is now actually not... Actually liable to punishment, which is a word, what the word actually means. Guilt in our day, in our culture, is, is a bad feeling, right? A feeling about oneself, a poor self-conception uh, for maybe failing to live up to my own standard. And, and the solution today is not forgiveness and repentance and striving after new obedience, but rather adjusting the standards. You know, just take the standard down so now I can pass the standard and feel better about myself. Guilt has been reduced to bad feelings, salvation to good feelings about ourselves. But in reality, and you know this, that's that's not the truth, and it's it's a very harmful way to understand human behavior. And you know what? Our culture is starting to reap the fruits. In fact, started some time ago reaping the fruits of that view of guilt. And so lost also the joy that Scripture offers. Joy that is not a feeling, just a mere feeling good about yourself. Do you, you understand this? True joy. True joy is the knowledge found deep in the heart and rejoicing over the fact that while I was yet a sinner and therefore by definition an enemy of God and therefore subject to God's wrath, Christ died for me. For those who doubted or denied the reality of the wrath of God, that reality became all too real and all too true, and it actually did fall on them. Look at with, with me at the next chapter, chapter 2, as it falls on Assyria, first in the form of, of flooding and a breaching of her walls by a rushing of water swollen from rivers during a particularly heavy rain. Interestingly, we have uh, parallel historical accounts of that. Uh, to the Scripture here, and then in the form of invasion, as through those breached walls poured Persian and Median and especially Babylonian soldiers. Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly. Through the streets they rush to and fro, through the squares they gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers, they stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up, the river gates are open, the palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning, Like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate. Desolate and ruin. Hearts melt. Knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Now it's hard to know for sure but it's likely that as those prophecies of Nahum spread through Nineveh, they were probably met with laughter almost everywhere they went. So quickly had the Assyrians forgotten the repentance of their fathers when what other prophet? brought news to them I think I asked you children last time who was the other prophet the previous prophet who went to Nineveh a preaching remember yeah Jonah remember how they repented then a century or so before but now now they're laughing they're laughing but nobody laughs when this day we've just read about comes And though the wicked laugh today, they laugh at the message we bring and scoff, though the doctrine of God's wrath and especially of hell are now uh, now in matters fodder for the late night show comedians, you know, and the cartoon artists, nobody's going to be laughing on that great day of wrath at Christ's coming and his terrible judgment. God's wrath is real. It may be that this message cuts you to the heart. This truth that God's wrath is coming and that it is directed against you and your sin and your rebellion against God that has wrought, brought God's wrath on you. If so, then I say to you in Christ's name now is the time to turn. Now is the time to repent this very hour. As one faithful Puritan minister once put it to the unbelievers in his own congregation, if you are still a wanderer from God, let this hour see your tears and hear your prayers. Or soon you may never cease to weep where prayer is never made. The wrath of God is real. It is undeniable. And such is the solemn fact. Wrath denounced and wrath not feared is wrath without escape. I say to you in God's name these things because his wrath is not only real but it is also terrible. Just a glance now in chapter 3. 3 verse 3, horsemen, charging, flashing swords, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses. Verse 5, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle just as in the other judgments of God. So the enemies of God will see, verse 10, her infants dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Verse 15, there will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off. Your friends, this is just a little tiny sampling. That's all this is, a little sampling expressed in in temporal expressions of the everlasting Eternal, unending wrath of God against all those who will not bow the knee to Him, who will not submit to Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord. How terrible, I ask you, then, must the full reality be? No wonder it's denied. No wonder. No one wants this to be true. No one wants this doctrine. Even believers wish that this doctrine of divine wrath were not true. You just admit it at the core of your being, and I will too. We don't want this to be true. A- and if we could change anything about the Christian faith, you know this is what we'd change. No one wants this to be true. I I rather suspect that there was a great part of Nahum's own heart. Even as he carried this... Remember I told you you can translate oracle also as burden. As Nahum carried this heavy burden, no one wanted this to be untrue less than Nahum. But he couldn't wish it away and neither can you. You know, C.S. Lewis... C.S. Lewis, he said of hell, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of the Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. It is true repugnant as this doctrine is to our fallen senses as C.S. Lewis says it has both the support uh, the support of both scripture and reason in fact divine wrath was pointed out to me some time ago divine wrath appears 3 times more in the bible than the love of god appears in the bible not that god is 3 times more a god of wrath than a God of love, but that we're three times more likely to deny that. This is why it's so important for us to understand God's wrath rightly and not not as it has been so terribly misrepresented. Not only to understand it and to believe it, but then also to proclaim it, to tell it clearly and boldly, though it wrench our stomachs in the process. John, the, the Rabbi Duncan, an 18th century Scottish Presbyterian minister and professor, both know, uh, known best for the depth and the, and the passion of his inner life, once, once said that he, did, he, he never did preach and could not preach about hell because he was sure it would make him sick. Well, sick or not, may God give us the grace to be stopped short by these doctrines in the way we ought to be. Dear ones, we simply have to proclaim this. We have to tell others about this, terrible as it is. The Lord Jesus Christ himself later wept, remember, over Jerusalem, because he could see with his mind's eye, couldn't he see? He could see the wrath of God descending upon her. And it moved him to tears. I I don't know how it is I can be standing here and preaching this to you without tears right now. I truly am baffled by my own heart. But even if it were, even if I were weeping and and hitching up here with, with sickness and tears, still i have to preach it to you and still you have to tell this to your neighbors go and tell them tell them this is coming I remember a story about a foggy day in in london or just outside of london i think it was the cars were piling up in the in the fog one after another the crash was growing boom one car after another smashing into the into the pile of wreckage and the policemen showed up on the scene and they started waving trying to uh, up 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 the street trying to stop the traffic best they could waving their hands and nobody was stopping nobody even seemed to to bear them any mind boom 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 one car after another they start taking up these police officers cones they're throwing cones at the cars and crying and wailing out, boom, boom. This is our task, brothers and sisters, one after another, after another. Your neighbors are heading into a Christless eternity of wrath. What, Whatever you have to do, tell them. For our sakes, also, it will do us well to look at this doctrine closely and seriously and to think carefully about the future and what it's bringing. You know, what could sanctify us more than, than to think carefully about the future and what it's bringing that we shall stand before the Lord, every one of us, and give account personally. And we will find that, it, that God's word was true here, terribly true, that the descriptions we've heard in Nahum just held barely a shadow to the reality of the terrible eternal destination of hell for those who will refuse him. Or of glorious, tearless, wonderful rest for those who are in him. Contemplate the wrath of God, Christians, until it do at least these two things for you. First, that it send you pleading for the grace of God to serve him acceptably with reverence and fear for our God is a consuming fire and then second to draw out of your soul the purest and most fervent praise to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for having delivered you from this wrath to come Amen